I'm Julie Coleman. I'm one of the uh, teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. And this morning we're going to continue our foray into the prophets, the Old Testament prophets that we began with Malachi this fall. And we're going to start today a holiday series that are, is based on the names of Jesus that are found in Isaiah 9-6, a prophecy about the Messiah. For unto us, or for to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This morning, we're going to be taking a close look at the first of those names, Wonderful Counselor. One song, many of the songs that we sang this morning reflected this aspect of the Messiah. Um, wonderful uh, ma- Counselor, Comforter, Keeper, Spirit we long to embrace. You offer hope when our hearts have hopelessly lost the way. You know, sometimes it's not so easy to find the way, is it? I'm talking about life's decisions. When you, there's something big that comes up and you're trying to figure out what to do, and uh, it's not that easy to figure it out. In my 20th year as an elementary school teacher, yes, I'm that old, I lost my enthusiasm for the job. Now, this is the girl who lays awake at night dreaming of exciting lesson plans and beautiful bulletin boards. But all of a sudden, I was having a hard time with being a teacher. Walking into that classroom was a thing I dreaded. As the kids filed in, um, you're ready to start the day, I really struggled to feel any kind of sense of love toward them. This was not me. (laughs) This was not me. But my heart had changed. And a big part of that was that God had given me this dream of becoming a writer and a speaker. And I really wanted to do that. But I did start to wonder, because I wanted it so much, like, was that idea from God? Or was that something I figured out? Or was it just teacher burnout, maybe? That was very possible. Steve and I have talked a lot about it during the course of that year. and uh, But we were both concerned that if I just quit cold turkey and then sat in front of a blank computer screen, that might not turn out so well. So um, I would probably lose my mind. So we just decided we were going to keep praying for wisdom, and that's what we did. Well, a few months later, I had lunch with another writer who had the same passion for Scripture that I had and for teaching Scripture. And, um, and during the conversation, she told me about when she attended seminary. Now, so she suggested that I should consider going and getting a master's in biblical studies so I could build credibility as an author if I ever wanted to be published. Well, that idea was so thrilling to me, I couldn't even sleep that night, laid awake with my eyes wide open. But I did wonder this. Was this counsel, was this woman's telling me this thing from God or not? Because I have to admit, I did worry. I wanted it so badly. And even though it was kind of a spiritual thing to desire, in my heart I knew it could more than likely be about what I wanted rather than what God was directing me to do. I wanted it too much to be from God. (laughs) Have you ever struggled with a burden like that? Maybe even a chronic situation like a family problem that keeps cropping up or a job situation that you're in the middle of or maybe financial struggles or even trying to figure out the wisest way to raise your children, which, if you're a parent, occurs on a daily basis. You pray for guidance from God, but then what you think is this answer comes along. How do you really know that that guidance is truly from him and not just out of our own wisdom or desire? Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at Jesus, the wonderful counselor. 
We're going to look at the ways in how he fulfills that name. And then we're going to look at how we can interact with him to receive that wisdom and counsel and feel confident that he's the one reading in a particular direction. So we'll be reading Isaiah 9. It was written about 700 years before Christ was born. It was a time when the Assyrian Empire was threatening both the northern and southern kingdoms. This section of the prophecy was meant to give people hope. Get, tell them that God had a plan for the Messiah. He would send one day to rule the earth, the world in peace. It was something that they could cling on to at a time when judgment for their sin was imminent. Assyria is on the border, ready to come in and destroy. But that God remained committed to his covenant to them, to his commitment to them. So let's go ahead and take a look at Isaiah 9. I'm just going to be skipping a little bit here and there uh, for sake of time. This is what it says in verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let's pray. God, what a glorious prophecy. We praise you so much for your great plan from the foundation of the earth to bring the Messiah here to die for us and to redeem us from our sin. We thank you, God, for the fact that he is the wonderful counselor. And I just pray, Lord, as we look at this passage of scripture, you would just get me right out of the way, help your scripture to shine through into hearts, because I know that's where the power for change lies. Use this morning to transform our relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So while we studied Malachi, we made a point that prophecy often points to kind of a near fulfillment backwards here, near fulfillment, and then a far-off fulfillment in the same, of the same thing, right? So the prophets themselves were not really able to differentiate between the two. They just kind of gave it all in one big blob at times, and it's hard to tell apart the two comings of Christ. But uh, the first and second comings of the Messiah were definitely in the passage. We're told in Isaiah of a suffering servant and a reigning king. And while the people of Isaiah's day heard it all as one thing, um, all at once, and they did have trouble making sense of it, but we have the benefit of knowing what happened when Jesus came the first time. We can see what got fulfilled already. And I don't know exactly how many prophecies Jesus fulfilled while he was living here on earth, but I know in the book of Matthew, seminary fact, 128 prophecies just in that book he fulfilled. So, it, it was, it was the, what he fulfilled then verified that he was the Messiah come to earth. Um, 
But he didn't fulfill all of what Isaiah and the prophets said about him. Those things about the reigning and power and the government will be on his shoulders. Jesus taking the rightful place on the eternal throne of David. Those things have not been fulfilled. They're still to come. Only at his second coming will these prophecies be fulfilled. We see a great example of this in the book of Luke when Jesus first starts his ministry and he's in his hometown of Nazareth and he gets up at the, in the synagogue and he, the scroll is open that day to Isaiah uh, 61, 1 and 2. And this is what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he rolled up the scroll and he sat down. And he told them, today, that scripture has been fulfilled. Now, what Luke doesn't tell us is that there was one more phrase in that sentence in the Hebrew. And that phrase was, and the day of vengeance of our God. Of course, the day of vengeance isn't going to happen until Christ returns to judge the earth. So Jesus said, not today. The other stuff, now. That, later. Two comings in the same sentence. But Jesus differentiated between the two. So here in Isaiah, hope was promised to two nations close to destruction. And there would be a child born, God's anointed one, the Messiah. That's what uh, Messiah means, is anointed one. And the Greek word for that is Christos, or as we say, Christ. Just means anointed one, it's the same word, that one day would rule. He would minister in the region of Galilee. He would bring light into the darkness. He would usher a kingdom that would, be in, that would be eternal. He would reign from the throne of David, and justice and righteousness would characterize his kingdom. There would be no end to the increase of his government or in his established peace. But there are parts that have been fulfilled while we still wait for some of those things that have been fulfilled today. When Jesus came, he was establishing not a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. He began with the apostles and he continued building. Jesus used this metaphor to describe the spiritual kingdom. He said it was going to be like a mustard seed when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it's sown, grows up and becomes larger than all the the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Start small, we'll end big, right? Peter used another metaphor of a building that's being constructed. He said this, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Both of these metaphors give a similar picture of a kingdom that started small but continues to expand and would be built into something impressively great. And still in the future, the spiritual kingdom would mature into the climactic day when Jesus returns to rule a physical kingdom on earth. And then the government will be on his shoulders. And as Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
And one of the names to describe that great king is Wonderful Counselor. So what's a counselor? How is that word used in the Bible? In the Old Testament, a counselor was someone who advised kings, who gave advice telling the king what they should do according to their wisdom. Now, there were good counselors. One guy that came to mind right away is a guy named Ahithophel, um, and this is what the Bible says about him. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired word of God. So was the, all the advice of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. So there were good counselors. There were also bad counselors. King Rehoboam, uh, he, when he first became, he was Solomon's son, and when he first became king, the people came to him, and they said, your father burdened us with all the things that he built and all the great accomplishments he did. That was on our backs, and we're asking you as our next king, please lift the burden because it's killing us. And so he goes to the elders, and the elders said, listen to the people. He, he, he unjustly burdened them, and you need, to, you need to be a compassionate king. He ignored them and went to some bad advisors. And this is what they said. But you shall speak to them, whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions. So... Rehoboam unwisely chose bad counsel. And it ended up having the people rebel and the kingdom split in two. So good counselors, bad counselors. But good or bad, a counselor's word had tremendous impact on those who listened to them. There's a more detailed understanding that I got of the counselor from another passage in Isaiah 40. It's verses 13 to 14. It says this, Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him? And with whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Now, it's talking about somebody thinking that they can advise God. But the word counselor is there. And I want you to note the verbs that are in this, this, these verses. A counselor directs. A counselor informs. A counselor consults. He gives understanding, and he teaches justice and knowledge. Now, would the counselor, the counselor that Isaiah was talking about in 9.6, would the counselor be a good or a bad counselor? Well, there's a qualifier in that name, which gives us the answer. The Messiah is called Wonderful Counselor. Now, I, the word wonderful doesn't quite inadequately ex express exactly what this word would have meant in the Hebrew. Um, that Hebrew word indicates something uncommon or out of the ordinary. It reflects a phenomenon lying outside the realm of human explanation, that which is separated from the normal course of events. Wonderful. It carries a sense of the supernatural, of the miraculous. It's a word that gives voice to the amazing teaching and foresight and wisdom of Jesus that he's already displayed. He was God in the flesh, and it was predicted in Isaiah 11:2, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That is who our wonderful counselor is. He was the wonderful counselor here on earth when he came. That part he fulfilled. 
John called him the Word of God, that all things were created for him and by him. Who would better understand the world around it than the one who created it? So there's this guy, 19th century. His name was Sir Joseph Lister. He was a British surgeon in the 1800s who pioneered sanitary operating room procedures. Now, at the time, get ready for this, doctors operated with their bare hands, in street clothes, wearing shoes that had trekked over the public roads and hospital corridors, along with, on the streets, the horse dung that was left over from the carriages. They permitted spectators to gather around the operating table and observe. So I guess if somebody sneezed on your patient, oh well. Surgical instruments, they did wash with soapy water, but they didn't sterilize them. And in many hospitals, the result of this unsanitary action during surgery was that 90% of the patients died. So not great, right? So Lister had read some research that had been done by Louis Pasteur, and he started experimenting with chemical substances to find something that would kill what he believed existed, microbiotic organisms. And he found that carbolic acid was something, when it was used on the instruments and sprayed on the incision and the dressings, remarkably reduced the incidence of gangrene. And so he started to use that and teach these things to other doctors. But as groundbreaking and remarkable as his discoveries were, his ideas were not accepted at first, as you can imagine, widely criticized. But on August 24, 1902, Edward VII was about to be coronated as king of England. And he came down with appendicitis. And it was very obvious they were going to have to operate or he was going to die. But in view of the extremely high risk of being on the operating table, the surgeons did not dare operate without consulting the leading voice on uh, surgical authority. So Lister, of course, obliged and advised him in the latest antiseptic surgical methods, and they followed those right to the letter, and the king survived. And later he told Lister this, I know that if it had not been for you and your work, I wouldn't be sitting here today. When you want the best advice, you go to the originator of the thing. Well, the word, world originated in Christ, by Christ. Jesus created the world. He was the word of God, John 1. He was the light in the darkness. So, of course, he knows far beyond what any of us could know about the world and the way life works. He is our best source of wisdom and will be for the ages. Another way that Jesus was a wonderful counselor is that his insight and his wisdom were easily recognizable to anybody who was willing to look. He spent three years teaching his followers about the kingdom of God and what it truly meant to be part of God's kingdom. One of the things that's really telling is when Jesus was a boy at 12 years old, and I'm sure you're familiar with the story, he, went, he, he ended up staying behind. His parents went home with a crowd of relatives back to Nazareth, and on the way, they realized they hadn't seen him in a while and started looking, and they couldn't find Jesus anywhere. So Joseph and Mary headed back to Jerusalem. And when they found him, uh, it's, it's said that the, the people that were sitting and talking with this 12-year-old kid were astounded and amazed at how much he understood. 
And so all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. The second time we see that kind of um, reset is at the temple again, but this time he's an adult and it's Passion Week. And he's almost at the point where he's going to be arrested and be crucified. And the priests were watching him teach every day in the temple during that week. And it just drove them crazy because this is what Luke says. All the people were hanging on to every word he said. Wonderful counselor. That's what he was. He spoke with such authority. He put a new spin on the current thinking of his day. And it was all through Matthew 5. You have heard it said, but I say to you, that beautiful twist where he takes what's common understanding and common teaching and moves it into God's reference point. Beautiful. Love that passage. He looked hypocrisy in the eye and he called a spade a spade. You Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside you, you're full of robbery, robbery and wickedness. He proved himself to be the best way to live and he lived it out with his own life. Hebrews says this, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. For all who believed, he truly was a wonderful counselor. But his time on earth was short. He was only here about 33 years, and he didn't abandon his followers, though, as he left to carry on without him. He promised to send the Holy Spirit to continue his counsel and guidance on earth. That's exactly what he did. This is what, uh, in John 14, he uh, talked about the Holy Spirit that would give knowledge and remind us what we had heard before. When the Helper, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit was just a continuance of that counsel, that wonderful counsel that Jesus was giving. Paul further defines the role of the Spirit in that he revealed, reveals to us the thoughts of God. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And we have received the Spirit who's from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. We have the mind of Christ. Why? Because of the Counselor who lives within us. He leads us in the way we should go. Galatians says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The Spirit, the Counselor, he works in the heart of man. In John, Jesus said, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. And the Spirit, the wonderful Counselor, he enables unity among believers, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And finally, the Spirit, and there's probably many more that I've missed, but we only have a half an hour. <laughs> How do you describe God in a half an hour? But he provides the right words at the right moment. We're seeing this in our study in Acts. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, as the council observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and had nothing to say in reply. That's the kind of counselor he is. In short, Jesus and the Holy Spirit together, the miraculous counselor, 
that can do what no one else can, a resource when tapped into who can provide supernatural wisdom and insight for our needs. So what? What does all this mean for us today? Everyone who's believed in Jesus has the Holy Spirit in them. Um, and he's living in us permanently. Paul tells us he's been given to us in Ephesians 1 as a seal, a mark that shows that we have been changed, that we are a new creation. So we have him within us, right within us. So how do we get wisdom then from the wonderful counselor? Well, a good place to start as an example to us is to look at the example in the Psalms. Um, the writers of the Psalms give us an example with a lot of their lyrics. They spoke to their counselor about their fears, their complaints, their problems. And our wonderful counselor listened like a good counselor does with compassion, journeys through the ups and downs. But more importantly, he responds to the cry of our hearts by tenderly leading the way through grace and his wisdom. You know, we tend to first, at least I, I shouldn't say we, I tend to first go to friends and family for advice when I'm looking for the right thing to do. But I think we really do need to start first by asking him, him who dwells in us, asking him. The first step, though, is to pour out our heart, show him our concern, and ask what we need to know. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? How do we need to re get receive counsel from God? Ask him. Because Proverbs tells us, if you cry for discernment, if you lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for his hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of God, of the Lord, and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. For his mouth, from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. Ask. So he'll be faithful to give it to you. James says, if any of you ask wisdom, then let him ask of God, who gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. And I really think it needs to start there. I think that we need to make our request between us and God. Keep it a private matter. Talk to him about it. Because that gives time for us to make it a very personal thing between us and our creator, between us and our wonderful counselor, when we're waiting quietly and listening for his answer. Because that's what he always wants from us, to seek him first. But there's a second question that also begs to be answered from our content today. How do we know that the thoughts and ideas that we're getting are from God and not from ourselves? Because we know from Scripture that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. That's discouraging. So we need to be able to differentiate between his counsel and something that we might think of on our own. So I'd like to suggest three questions that you can ask that might help you with discernment um, whether what the th you're thinking is coming from God or whether it's from your own person. The first question is this. Does this guidance, does this idea contradict Scripture? Because if it's telling you to do something that, you're, that Scripture is very plain about not doing, it's not good. Because he's never going to guide you against what Scripture says. Why? Because he wrote the Scripture <laughs> with his Holy Spirit. So 
um, he'd be contradicting himself. And God cannot lie. God can only be who he is. And so he will never contradict himself. As it says in the Psalms, his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So scripture is our first way to check what we think we should do. As much as we could wish that we could just hear a voice, although I, I suspect that if we did hear a voice, we might go running out of the room. But most often his counsel is not going to come in an audible form. Uh, but being in scripture does give us the filter we need. And the more immersed we are in scripture, the more we know and the more we think about it all the time, the, the, and the more in community we are with other believers, the more clearly we will discern the mind of Christ. His counsel comes through his word and his people. Second question to get the sermon on what you think God is telling you. Can God get the glory should I heed this thought? And I think back to the first commandment Jesus said was the most important. Love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Now, I told you at the beginning about wanting to go to seminary and not knowing if it's the right thing. Well, I sat over lunch with Beth one day, my friend Beth, and, um, and so I was telling her, I was trying to decide about going to seminary, and I just was really struggling. I just wanted it so much, and, and so she's just cut right to the chase. And she said this, will God get the glory if you do this? So I thought about it, and I said, well, yes. I mean, I, I, I want to learn his word better so I can be a better writer and teacher. I want people to understand him and love him more, and I want to be somebody that can help them do that. So yes, he would get the glory. So she looked me right in the eye and said, do it! And nobody contradicts Beth, so I quit school and went to seminary. <laughs> Will he get the glory? That's an important thing to think of. And finally, a final question for discernment. Who would this action or attitude benefit in the long run? Would it just be you? Would it be others around you? Could it in the long run actually cause hurt to someone else? Because the second commandment is this. First was love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is and your neighbor as yourself. So that would be something we just need to watch for our, our own selfish desires. There are two other uh, helps to discern God's voice, but you need to be careful about these. And I'm not even putting them up there because I don't want them to stick with you too far. But circumstances, they can indicate guidance on some levels. Uh, but you need to be careful. Um, because sometimes circumstances aren't dictating anything. They're God teaching you something. For example, when Jesus was with the disciples after a long day of preaching, he was tired, and he told them, let's get in the boat, take, let's take us to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples did exactly what Jesus said to do. And then, in the middle of the night, they're on their way over, and what happens? A big gale, wind gale comes up, the waves are tossing, the boats start filling with water. I mean, it was perilous. Now, if you were someone who counted on circumstances to think, this must mean I'm not in the will of God, when Jesus told them, get in the boat and row across the water, and they were doing that, then you have to know that sometimes circumstances are not indicative of what God wants. Sometimes the hard is there for our benefit, for us to learn and for us to grow and develop. God takes us through these things. 
So trouble doesn't always mean you're on the wrong track. And the easiest thing to do may not be the best thing. So you've got to watch about circumstances. And the other thing is listening to others, friends that you can trust, but you have to watch who you listen to. Because people, uh, you need to find people who approve their spiritual sensitivity and interest who really truly have the heart of Christ. But even they are not perfect. So you have to watch those too. Well, in closing, I want to leave you with a little word of hope that it won't always be such a challenge to listen and heed his voice. I'm sure you've seen this guy here. His name is Steve Jobs. He's a household name, a former CEO of uh, Apple Computers. But he had a humble beginning. He and a friend developed a computer in his parents' garage that they began to sell and produce in 1976. They called it the Apple One. Now, it wasn't a, a user-friendly computer. It had to be somebody who took, you know, took a real interest in computers that knew stuff that an ordinary person wouldn't do. And remember, in 1976, nobody had a home computer. My father used to fix IBM computers, and they were in rooms as big as this one. I mean, huge, huge, monstrous thing. To have a computer sit on your desk was just unheard of at that point. So they, uh, they did get some people buying them, and it actually put money in their pockets. Then the following year, they came out with the Apple II. Now they're getting a little more sophisticated. They became very user-friendly, so ordinary people like you and me could use it. And it had color graphics. They sold three million's worth that first year. But two years later, that number was dwarfed by 200 million in sales. They finally went public at that point, sold off their company in stocks, and the first day of trading, their company was worth over 1.2 billion dollars. There were a lot of major bumps in the road after that initial success, and for a while it looked like the company might falter. But in 1998, Apple released the iMac, and then next year, the iPod, and then the iPhone, and then they pioneered the tablet marker with the iPad in 2010. Today, it's nearly impossible to walk down the street or get a cup of coffee without seeing someone with an Apple-made device in their hands. And this is what Jobs once said of Apple. We started out to get a computer into the hands of everyday people, and we succeeded beyond our wildest dreams. The prophecy for the son that we're looking at this morning, who would be a wonderful counselor, was fulfilled in Jesus' day and in the Holy Spirit today in those who believe in him. But someday, he will be the counselor who will exceed our wildest dreams. There's a day in the future in which all the world will recognize and heed the wonderful counsel of the Lord. It's not always going to be like it is now, where people consider the wisdom of God foolishness, where we can't really sometimes figure out what God wants for us. Faith will be sight. And all doubt and denial of who he is will be removed. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow to the wonderful counselor. And uh, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The world will one day know and embrace and acknowledge our wonderful counselor.